welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Good morning, church. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our series through the first gospel of the Bible. Series I've entitled The Savior King and His Kingdom. You know, one of the things that ought to fill us with wonder as we think about it, and we should think about it regularly, and really cause us to love God more and more, and, and David alluded to it, is, is God's compassion. God cares about you individually, by name. It's not, it's not, you know, mankind. Does God care about mankind? Yes, he created us to be the object of his love, but not just generally and as a whole, but individually, each one of us. He knows each one of us by name, and he cares about us. First Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. If we will pause and think about that, God, infinite, perfect, eternal God, so much bigger than us that there is no words that we can use to compare the difference between us and God. He cares about us. The illustration or example that popped to me, when I walk through my yard, I don't, I don't, try to avoid stepping on ants. I'm not watching to see where my steps are going. I don't care about ants. Matter of fact, I care about them less more. I got bit by several of them this weekend. It's really bothering me. We don't, we don't care about things like that. But God is so much bigger than the difference between me and ants than, than, than us and that we, and he cares for us. He loves us. He cares about us. He does things for us. That ought to just blow our minds to think how much God cares for us when, when there is no logical reason why he should except the fact that he created us for that very purpose. So that we could be his, so that we could be cared for and cared about by him. This morning we're going to look at several expressions of God's compassion through his son, Christ Jesus, and then we're going to look at Christ's heart for the lost. And then we're going to end and talk a little bit about how to make our hearts more like Christ's heart. So we'll, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to 
open our hearts to that, and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your presence here today, thanking you for that, that anointed worship, that time to just allow our hearts to be still, to lift our hearts, our eyes, our minds up into the very throne room of God and experience your presence like we, we might not be able to experience any other time. I thank you for that, Lord. And I thank you, Lord God, for giving us this place and this time to sit and just, just be still and listen for your voice, to listen for your spirit to move within us. And we ask, Lord God, that you would make us open, that if there's something you want to do inside or you want to change something in us, you want to, you want to, you want to move us, you want to, you just want to help us to experience you more today. I pray, Lord, that we would be wide open to it, Lord. And I know as we come, we come with so much stuff. We come with grief. We come with with pain. We come with, with um, bad doctor reports. We come with financial issues. We come with relationship issues. We come with hard things, God. And Lord, you know every one of them. And you care about it. You know, we might, we might forget that when we're in the midst of the pain and the suffering. But you never stop caring for us. And even while we're experiencing those hard things and you've allowed them into our lives for, for some reason... Lord, we, got, we know you never stop caring. And not only are you caring about those things, you're caring for them. And you have an answer for them. And that we just need to trust you, believe you, and wait for you. And we ask, Lord God, you to help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last message, message we saw Jesus interact with two religious groups, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. And in dealing with them, Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, declared his mission, his reason for being there. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <clears throat> excuse me. The word mercy can also be translated compassion. They're very similar. They have similar applications. God desires mercy or compassion more than sacrifice. Sacrifice, he gave them sacrifice for a reason and a purpose, but, but more conforming to the nature of God is mercy and compassion. God is a merciful God. Matter of fact, if you read through the Bible, you'll find hundreds of references to God's mercy and compassion. And as we go through this text today, we're going to see that mercy and compassion expressed first through a series of miracles, which are, are done to deal with the issues that people are going through. Because who, anybody got issues today? <laughs> we, we come with issues, right? With, you know, even when things are going good, there's issues, right? There's always something somewhere is going on, and, and, and we, we, we want God's mercy, that means that you know, whatever it is, because sometimes the, the things, the issues are going on because, well, because we blew it somehow. We've made mistakes. We've made bad, cho bad choices. You know, other times we're looking for God's grace. God, do something. I don't deserve it. Do it for me anyway. And God is a, is a merciful God. God is a gracious God, and we can trust him. I may have made a mistake. He'll still, he can still be merciful to me. And we see here these, these miracles and these, these first two that we're going to look at are intermingled. They're, they're mixed together. Starting in verse 18. 
While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Several of these miracles are also found in Mark and Luke's Gospels that refer to the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they, they cover many of the same accounts, all of them from a slightly different perspective. It's like three different people witnessing the same events, telling their stories, and, and they always, almost always have little you know, details they draw out that are different than the others. And we see that in the Synoptic Gospels. In this account, and if, and if you want a deeper study on this, because we're just going to cruise right through these miracles, uh, I did a deeper study on that in my going through Luke. And so I, I put a link in the online description if you want to see, a, a, go, go into deeper study on this text, do that. But we, what we see in Mark and Luke's Gospel, uh, the ruler's name is Jairus, and his daughter is 12 years old, his only daughter, 12 years old, and she has died. So Jairus comes to Jesus. He is desperate, right? And that makes sense. Does that not make sense that your, your only daughter has died? And there's nothing Jairus can do about it. But he believes that there's something that Jesus can do about it. And so he comes to Jesus. Jesus responds immediately. What a beautiful thing. He doesn't challenge Jairus in his faith. He doesn't question him. He just, oh, okay, let's go. And he gets up and starts heading to it. But then as he goes with his desperate father, he's interrupted by another desperate person. Verse 20. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. The ruler was desperate because there was nothing he could do to save his daughter. The woman was desperate because there was nothing she could do to save herself. All of us can come to, come to God for the same kinds of reasons. We come to God because we're desperate. I can't solve this. And I don't know anyone else who can. And so now I, I must turn to God. Oh, if we would just start there. We would often be so much better off. You know, rather than going through all the mental gymnastics of trying to figure out how to solve all, all of our problems, if we go to God first, say, God, okay, okay, maybe you might call me to solve this myself, but before I even try, you tell me, God. You help me, God. You point me to an answer. You point me to a solution. Maybe, maybe I just need you to do it, God. You know, God can do that, right? Is there anything in your life that God can't do? No, he can do anything you need him to do if we just trust him. God, Luke's gospel tells us, Dr. Luke's gospel tells us that she, this woman had this flow of blood um, for 12 years and that she had spent all of her money on doctors trying to solve it. And those doctors could do nothing for her. Can, can we get, can we relate to that reality? I respect the medical industry to a degree. But the reality is that there are things in the body that are mysterious, that are, that are beyond doctor's understanding. 
There are things that they can't do. And for whatever is going on in this, in this woman's body, things that maybe we could solve today, not then, not 2,000 years ago. And she's desperate. For 12 years she's gone through this. And what we don't see in this, and I can't spend a lot of time on this because I can't, is that the flow of blood made her unclean. Culturally unclean. That means that she was, she, was, she was spiritually separated from her culture. And that was, a, that was a pretty desperate thing for her. The fact that she walks through this crowd is pretty remarkable. And the fact that she would touch Jesus, that was absolutely forbidden in their culture. And she does it believing that if I can just touch the hem of his garment, that I will be healed. I'll be made well. That all this stuff I've been, this stuff I've been wrestling with my, for 12 years will be done. And, and the sense of the text that we get in any of the Gospels is that she thought she could just do this unnoticed. Well, that doesn't happen. Verse 22. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. So Jesus sensed the healing power going out from him. Now, this, now when we start talking about healing, again, I'm, this is not going to be a healing message. We start talking about healing. If you study the way Jesus healed people, it is absolutely remarkable that you cannot find a pattern. There is no pattern to how Jesus healed here is a case where Jesus didn't even know he was healing somebody. It, the power flowed out of him without his knowledge. It wasn't until after she had experienced the healing power that he noticed the power, the power had left him. That's because it was the Holy Spirit doing the work. It's always the Holy Spirit doing the work. Jesus normally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knows, okay, okay, we need to heal this person. He's going he's gonna to raise the dead here in a, in a minute. He knows that's the, that's the Holy Spirit moving through him. Yeah, we don't... If we would learn to trust God more fully, we would see more radical, miraculous things taking place. You know, do you actually have to even think about healing somebody for God to heal them? No. Nope. You know what you need to do? Believe God. Trust God. Let him do what he wants to do, right? Because God is good, right? God is good. Does God love that person that needs to be healed more than you do? Yep. He loves them perfectly. So Jesus sends this power going out. Woman's healed. And then Jesus continues on with the desperate father. Verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they ridiculed him. So, so Jesus comes into the room, all these noisy people running around and we're doing whatever they're doing, wailing and, and all this stuff. It was a very traditional, very cultural thing. This still happens in some cultures around the world today. When somebody dies, this wailing and, you know, this almost as a, um, it's an art form, really, in many ways. And so it, it is a ritualistic expression of grief. 
And that's going on here with, in this situation. Very natural, very cultural. But Jesus says to them, you know, hey, 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 don't worry about it. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Was she dead or was she sleeping? No, she was dead. They understood what death was. They know what, when somebody dies, they know what that is. Here's what I want you to get out of that. And this is really important for us as believers, that we need to understand Jesus, Jesus knows what he's about to do. This is so important for us. Jesus knows that he's going to raise this girl from the dead. And knowing that, what that means is that, is that he is going to, you know, that as, as far as he is concerned, as far as really as the girl is concerned, death is no more terrifying than sleep. There's a powerful message in there for that, for us, if we understand this concept. Listen, death is the great terror of human life. Nobody likes to talk about death on any, for any reason, under any circumstances, especially when it comes down to, like, my own death. I don't want to talk about my death. I don't want to think about my death. But what he's saying here is the fact that, the fact that he's going to raise her from the dead, death is, is irrelevant to her. It's as, it's as, is as harsh and as difficult to accept as her falling asleep. She's going to wake up. The Apostle Paul picks up on this several times in his teaching. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he said this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. What he's saying is that, is that for a believer, death, again, is no more of a concern to us as is falling asleep. Because what do we know as believers? We're going to wake up. We're going to wake up from death. We're going to wake up in the presence of the Lord. And so while dying, not too keen on the idea of dying, but I'm not afraid of death. Because I know the moment, the last breath I take on this earth, the very next moment, I'm going to be in presence of the Lord. And I will rejoice and I will glory and I'll, I will be full and I'll be satisfied and I'll, I will be in the presence of God forevermore. That's a good thing. Somebody say hallelujah. That's a good thing. Verse 25. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of, report of this went out into all the land. You know, obviously it's not an everyday occurrence that somebody raises the dead, right? Yeah, none of us have probably experienced it in our own lifetimes. Um, we may or may not ever experience anything, anything like it in our own time. We might, we might experience somebody being revived, but never, never raised from the dead like this. Then the account turns from this desperate father who is no longer desperate to two desperate men. Verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, two blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Blindness was a fairly common problem during that, that time. 
And, and it was for lots of reasons. There's lots of different reasons why blindness was a problem then. And it was a serious handicap. It's not like today where, where people with that handicap can live something of a life, not a normal life as we would describe it, but, but they can live some kind of a life. Back then it wasn't like that. You were, you, were, you, you were depending upon everyone, other people for almost everything. And so it was much more difficult. They, these two men come to Jesus and they ask for mercy. They ask for compassion. And that, that's a good message for all of us is that when we, when we need something from God, whether it be mercy or compassion or grace or whatever, protection, provision, whatever, ask him. But what, what can you ask God for? Well, anything that his word allows for, you can ask for. If his, if his word allows for it, ask him for it. And you can ask him for absolutely anything, but understand, if, it does, if his word doesn't confirm it, you don't, don't expect it kind of a thing. I'm still waiting for that Corvette, but that's all right. That's another message. <laughs> kidding, kidding. <clears throat> I want you to notice something about Jesus doesn't appear to respond to these guys immediately, which, which is a, a, a reminder to us to be persistent in our prayers. There are some people who believe you pray once and then and trust God to do the rest. That's not the sense I get from Scripture. When I get, when I, the sense I get from Scripture, you keep praying until God answers your prayer. Now, he can answer it lots of different ways, but you keep praying until he does. When he answers your prayer, then you can stop praying. For some things, we wanna, we're going to pray for the rest of our lives on those things. Some things we pray for, and God does it right away. Keep praying. He also then challenges them about their faith. Do you believe? He says to them, do you believe? And so that's a reminder to us to actually, you know, to, to go to God in faith and prayer. When you go to God and pray, you should believe that God is real. First off, that's always a good thing. If you're going to pray to God, you've got to believe that he's real. And you've got to believe that he can do something. You've got to believe that he can do what he says. Not only that, you need to also believe that he's willing that he's willing to do it. That's one of the things I've seen, one of the downsides I've seen with people when they pray. Say, I know that God can, I'm just not sure that he will. Oh, yes, he will. He will answer your prayer. Now, maybe not exactly the way you want him to, but he will answer your prayer. When? Every time he will answer your prayer. We must go to God in faith Believing that he can answer our prayers. We've got to remind ourselves that, that God doesn't need us to pray. He just doesn't need us to believe to do anything, right? God is independent of us. He'll do what he wants when he wants. But he has created a system, if you will, a, a system of reality where our faith is important. It got, that's, that's God's you know, it's his way of doing it. He says, okay, this is how I want to operate in the world. I am going to operate through faith, through your faith. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to. He's not limited by that. He's not restrained by that, but he chooses to do that. And so if he's going to do something, we have to believe. We have to have faith. It's the faith of us as individuals. It's one of the main ways that the power of God is released into the world. If you, want, if, you want to, if you want to see God's power released into the world, you have to begin with faith. And so what we ought to be, and, and, and Jesus, you know, told the disciples, you know, the, the, or the disciples asked, you know, how, you know, how do we have more faith? 
They could see how important faith was. And so we understand, if you understand that faith is important, faith is what I need, then the very first thing you ought to pray for, God, give me more faith. Help me to believe. Believe what? Believe God. Believe his word. Believe what he says. So Jesus does this healing of the two blind men. Not, I mean, he, he did a lot of healing of blind men, but, but one of the things we, we see is that healing was one of the signs of the Messiah. When, when, they, were, when they talked about um, the, what the Messiah would look like, what he would do, one of the things they said he would do was heal the blind. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Now, as you look at that, I want you to notice that that, that word you is in capitalized. It's the Lord, God Almighty, Heavenly Father, and you is Christ Jesus in the Old Testament. One of the many places we see Jesus in the Old Testament. And he says, I called you in righteousness, will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness, from the prison house. Listen, everything Jesus did while he was on the earth and walking in his ministry proved that he was the Messiah. Proved it by the Old Testament. Throughout, throughout Jesus' life, he, he fulfilled one prophecy after another proving that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. Those who had eyes that were open to see the truth of who Jesus was based on the, test, the, the, the scriptures they had at the time could see this is, in fact, the Messiah. And only a religious, a hard-hearted, religious, stiff-necked people would reject that. Two men, these two blind men leave, no longer blind. Another desperate man is brought to Jesus. Verse 32. <clears throat> As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, and the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. So this guy comes, he can't speak, and... and and, and he's demon-possessed, whether the demon possession, the demon was causing him not to speak, or, or they were unrelated but connected. It doesn't say, but Jesus casts out the demon and, and cures his, his muteness, and he's able to speak. People hadn't seen those kinds of things. Jesus was doing things that he'd never seen before. People had never seen before. But we understand that, you know, you go through, we see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. We need to remind ourselves, miracles is not why Jesus came. Jesus was not about the miracles. Turn just a, a page or two to the right, um, to your right, to Matthew 11. The miracles pointed to something, but they were not the something. In, verse, in chapter 11, starting in verse 2, says this. And when John, this would be John the Baptist, heard in prison about the works of Jesus, the works are the miracles, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Coming one is the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to him, I want you to notice he doesn't say yes or no, but listen how, how he answers. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Turn back to Matthew 9. Listen, Jesus said, all these things I'm doing prove that I am the Messiah. Because why? Because the Old Testament said that's exactly what was going to happen. The Messiah would do these things. And so Jesus was doing exactly what the scriptures foretold. And it's an interesting thing if you think back, who was, who, who inspired the Old Testament scriptures? The Word of God. Who is the Word of God? Jesus who inspired the prophecies about Jesus? Jesus. That's a whole other story. You can get into that later. So, yeah, hey, as Jesus is doing these things, he's doing these miracles, 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 amazing things. Raising the dead. You know, healing this woman, you know, the, the deal, you know, healing the blind men and the mutant demon possessed, all these things in mean, rapid fire fashion. And you would think people are like, whoa. But no, there are people who are offended by it. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus responds, and the other, other gospels deal with this a little bit more deeply. But Jesus responds by telling them, well, that's ridiculous and illogical. There will be some who will resist us. If you, are, if you are at all expressive about your faith, if you will, take, if, if you will tell people about Jesus, if you, will, if you will stand your ground for the things you believe and you do it in a way that others can see it, there will be people who will be offended. No question about it. The problem is they don't have a logical way to object to you. There is no logical way to object to you. There's no, there's no reasonable thing that for them to say that can say, this is why you shouldn't believe that. This is why you shouldn't act like that. This is why you shouldn't be nice. This, isn't, this is why you shouldn't be good. This is why you shouldn't be holy. This is why you shouldn't be righteous. This is why you shouldn't do good things. They have no logical way of expressing that. So what do they, what do they resort to? Name calling, bigot. You know, they'll use all these names and ugly things they'll say about you. They'll use illogical arguments to try to shut you up. So what should we do? Don't shut up. Tell them the truth in love. Don't, don't be ugly. Don't be mean. Don't be nasty. Tell them the truth in love. And then move on. Don't argue you should, we should make it a practice not to argue with foolish people. I see way too much of that online. Christians arguing with foolish people, and it always looks bad for the Christian. It, it always turns out them, them just, it just stirs up the ugliness and the hate and the, the nonsense. Tell them the truth and then move on. Don't argue with fools. Right? Anybody recognize the reality of that? But I like arguing. 
okay. <laughs> Go for it. Verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus' ministry had three primary components, teaching, preaching, and healing. Teaching is about imparting knowledge. It, it, it focuses on the mind and teaching about the things of God, the things of the Word of God. One of the reasons why, you know, as a, I, I consider myself a, a teacher of the Bible, as it's one of the reasons why we do things the way we do. We believe the Word of God has the power to save, the power to heal, the power to transform, the power to, to change everything for the good, for the holy, for the righteous. And so we teach the Bible right straight through it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, concept by concept. We're not going to skip over things that we don't find, you know, desirable or, or politic, politically correct, which is an oxymoron, but we're going we're gonna to move right along through it because we believe the Word of God is powerful to change for the good. And we must be careful about letting man's ideas and ideologies creep into our teaching. And sadly, too many churches are letting that happen. Too many churches are allowing the philosophies of man to creep in and corrupt the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you end up in a church where, where they barely, you know, people barely bring their Bible and they barely open their Bible, they barely refer to their Bible. It's not a good place. It's not a right place. One of the primary purposes of these gatherings is to learn about God and his word. Not about the pastor's favorite pet project or theology or not theology, well, could be a theology, you know, some ideology or social justice. Oh, heaven, forgive the wickedness of a pastor who focuses on social justice. It's evil. It's wrong. Now, are there injustices in the world? Oh, yeah. You know why? Because the world is filled with sinners. There will always be injustice. You know how you solve injustice? With the word of God. And people that are aligning their heart and mind to the Word of God, my job is to teach you what God's Word says, and it's your job to take that Word out there. And if you, if you see a problem with social justice, go deal with it. You go fix it. But that's your job, Pastor. No, show that to me in your Bible. It's the word of God rightly understood and obeyed that builds faith and pleases God and changes the world. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is. You gotta believe that God exists, that he's real, that he is exactly what the word of God says that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You gotta believe that if you seek God, there's going to be a reward of some sort. You got to believe that. If you don't believe that seeking God is going to be of some benefit to you, you're not going to get any benefit out of it. Neither will the rest of the world. And you know, that's why God wants to do a work in you because he's trying to do a work out there in others. 
So teaching is one thing. Preaching is another. Preaching is about influencing people toward God. You know, it's another part of a pastor's job is to influence people. To influence them not toward him, not toward, you know, making him famous or rich or influential, but to influence others toward God, toward uh, the word, toward obedience, toward righteousness. That's the responsibility of the pastors, of myself and Randy and the elders and everyone else that's of, of any ministry authority within the church. Our responsibility is to lead you and guide you toward, to influence you toward goodness, righteousness, and holiness. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't apologize. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't feel there's a problem with that because I'm trying to take you to God. You know, Jesus was also involved in healing. Miraculous healings still happen today. In fact, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced there's probably more healing going on today than there was at the time of Christ. Jesus healed a lot of people, but through the church and through the people of the church and the Spirit of God moving through the church, I believe there's more healings going on today than in, in human history because there's a lot of Christians out there right now, millions upon millions of them with the Holy Spirit living in them, ministering to the hearts and lives of other people, doing miracles. Jesus said that would happen. Jesus said that greater works would be done by the church than he did. And I believe that greater means more. He did that. Jesus did do miracles, great miraculous miracles. And he healed every sickness and disease. And he did that as a witness of his coming as the Messiah. Now we have the full revelation of God in the word of God. And we have the spirit of God. So we, we will not heal every sickness and disease. Now some churches believe that Christians should never get sick and somehow they believe Christians shouldn't die. I, I'm not really sure how that happens. Um, you know, but the reality is, is that, you know, if you teach that Christians shouldn't get sick, it really argues the fact that, you know, that, 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 you know, that it, it's, it fights against the reality of reality, that we get sick. And it, 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 faith is not going to change that. You know, God allows sickness. He allows disease. You know, he's, he says, that, hey, you know how long you get to live? As long as God says. And how are you going to die? I don't know. Whatever way God says. It might be sickness. It might be disease. It might be accident. It might be, you know, trauma. It might, who knows what it might be? That's God's, that's God's, you know, sovereignty at work. And sometimes sickness is going to happen. We should not, we should not object to God allowing certain things to happen in our lives. I don't have to like it. I don't like it if I get sick. I don't like it when, when I get injured or hurt. I don't like it when any of you get injured or hurt or sick or, or any of this. I hate that. But God is sovereign. And I'm going to pray against all those things. I'm going to pray for healing. I'm going to pray for all that because I believe God does heal. But he doesn't heal everyone. And he doesn't heal every time. And we have to understand that and accept that. But Jesus did. Every sickness, every disease because he was proving something. He was proving to the whole world he is who he says he is. He is who the word of God says he is. He is who God says he is. He is the savior of the world.
So pray. Pray for miraculous healing. Pray believing. God, this is too big. This is too hard. There's nothing man can do to solve this, but you're bigger than man. You're greater than man. You, are, you have the creative power that brought this world into existence. You know, God brought this world into existence with a word. You know, he can change it with a word too. Meaning whatever sickness that this, the, the fallenness of this world brings, he can take away. Believe it. Pray for it. We're living in a world where there is sin. We've talked about that a lot going through this, through this study. Everything that sin touches, it corrupts. Everything it touches, it corrupts or destroys. And as long as we're in this world, God would call us to care. To care about all the brokenness around us. To care about all the damage that sin has done, both in our own lives and the lives around us and the world in general. He calls us to care. Why? Because he cares and we're called to be his people. We should care that people are suffering. We should care that people are in bondage to, to sin or are in bondage to other people. We should care about all of the ugly things that we're hearing about in the news. We should care about those things. Jesus did a lot while he was on the earth. But as he looks around... He could see that what he was doing was not enough. Verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, is the good shepherd, the only good shepherd. And yet as he looks at, at what's going on with, with his, the people around him, he says... It, it, it's, it's, I, I, I'm not going to get it all done. There are people, they're still weary, they're still scattered at, like a shepherd, like a, like a flock with no shepherd. It's one of my favorite pictures of the people of God is as a flock of Christ. He looked around at the multitudes and he could, he could see that they were not flourishing, at least not spiritually. And that reason for it is because the, their leaders were not, were not leading them. One of the gifts that God gives to the church is pastors and teachers, according to Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. It's a role that God gives so that the people of God might not get scattered, might not get weary if they will follow the good shepherd you know, through a human shepherd. The Greek word here translated as pastor is, is, trans, is, is, the, is translated as shepherd everywhere else in the New Testament. So it, it occurs one time, the word pastor occurs one time in the New Testament. Everywhere else, that same Greek word is trans, translated shepherd. If you ever want a fascinating study of this, there's a little book out there um, that, that I, I can't remember. It talks about the shepherd. I think I can't remember if it's a Psalm 23 or whichever one. It goes through it. It's a beautiful little book. Describes how God cares for his people through the shepherd. And the shepherds care for the flock. And the, the, the shepherd cares for the entire life of the flock, of the sheep. To, to make them, to put them, to create an environment where they flourish. 
And while some are, are specifically called to the ministry of pastoring, myself, Pastor Randy, as, we, as we're called specifically to, to, to see to the spiritual health and well-being of the flock, all of God's people are called to care for God's flock. No one is excluded. While we're, you know, as, as, as pastors, we are still part of the flock. You know, one of the things I cherish about this church, this church cares for me. You know, they, you know people care about me and care for me. I love that because I am part of the flock just as I, I have needs just like all of you. Well, maybe not the same needs. Some of you just have weird needs. But, <laughs> but we all have, we're all humans, right? A pastor is not immune from the normal wear and tear of life. We need each other. And while some are called, to, to take a role in leadership in that, we're all called to care for one another, to care about one another. And while, while that specifically applies to our care for one another as believers, it should eventually extend out to everyone. And we don't know who God wants to be part of his flock you know, back in uh, my early days, in the early days of my marriage to Kelly, if you've ever heard her testimony, I was a heathen pagan content to stay that way for the rest of my life. And she wanted me to be saved so bad. And she didn't know. She didn't know if I was ever going to come to faith. Matter of fact, there were times in her life where she was pretty hopeless that I was never going to get it. We understand something. We don't know who God intends to bring into his kingdom. We don't know who God intends to make a part of his flock. So we must look at everyone as if they might be someone God is calling into his kingdom. You will never encounter a person that God doesn't love. Never. And you don't know which ones of those ones, the heathen pagans and the, those ones that are absolutely antagonistic toward the faith, whether or not God has a plan to, to break through the hardness of their heart and then bring them into the kingdom. So we must look at every single person as a possible child of God. And we have to care. We have to care enough to care about and care for whatever that might mean. We should be looking for ways to try to care for them. Within reason, of course. Let the Holy Spirit lead you on that. And then Jesus tells us why that should be important to us. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus could look out over the multitudes and see an abundance of people that he knew God wanted in his kingdom. God wants those people to be saved. But he also could see that there weren't enough laborers to go out there and, and bring in the harvest. And he also knew he wasn't going to be there for very long. A couple of years after this, Jesus is going to go to the cross and die. He resurrected and then returned to heaven. And they was going to turn over the harvest field to his disciples. 
to his church. And he tells us how we, as disciples, ought to respond to that reality. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I want you to notice something right here. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, go preach the gospel. There aren't enough laborers, so go preach the gospel. He'll do that later. He will tell them that later. But right here, he doesn't tell them that. What does he tell them to do? To pray. To pray for more laborers. All of God's people should play a role in bringing the gospel to a lost world. Every single believer has a responsibility before God to play a role in bringing the gospel to the lost. Everyone. Oh, oh no, that's your job, Pastor. Well, that's, that's Pastor Randy's job. That's Andy's job. No, oh, and never mind. Yes, he, he does a good job of it. Listen, one of the great works that you will do in your life as a believer is obeying this verse right here. You want to change the world for Jesus Christ? Obey this one verse right here. You should do more than that, but let's start with this one. Pray to God, the God of the harvest, the God who owns the harvest, to send out laborers. Pray that God would raise up and send out people who will share the gospel with the lost. God cares for them. God cares about them. There is not a lost person on this earth that God doesn't care about and desire to be a part of his kingdom. Now, he's, he knows those which, which will come and those which will not. He, he knows all of that, but you don't. So we should care about all of them in the hopes that we might save some, that even one person, if you could spend your entire life and bring one person to Jesus Christ at the end of your life, before the end of your life, you have done a remarkable work, a glorious, eternal work. We should desire, we should, we should desire that there are more people that will go out into the world and preach the gospel through word or deed or good works and then lead people into a right relationship to Jesus Christ through the, through the gospel. Pray. And if you are faithful to pray, a radical thing might happen. If you will pray that God will send laborers out into the harvest field, you know what he might do? He might change your heart. Right now, some of you said, I, 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 can't, I can't go share the gospel with anybody. I can't. I, well, they might say no. Well, of course they're going to say no. Probably for the first 90, 99 times you share it with them. But if you'll pray for God to send laborers, he may change your heart. He may change your heart and make you one of the laborers to go out into the harvest field and to share the gospel. That idea might terrify you right now, but I promise you, if you'll be faithful to pray that God will send out laborers, that will change. Your passion for the lost will grow. Your desire to see the lost saved will grow. Your desire to see more and more people in the kingdom of God will grow. And there'll come a point where you just feel compelled to do it. Know that if God wants to send you out, he'll get you ready for that. Why is that important? Because God is merciful. God wants to show his mercy to the whole world. 
and he's chosen to use the church to do it. It's through us that the world will see God's love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his holiness, his righteousness, all of the characteristics of God will be seen through his church. He wants to pour out his mercy and compassion on the lost sheep of this world. How do we know that? Because he did it to us. And he wants it to do everyone else. God wants us to care, and then he wants us to pray, and then he wants us to obey. Let's pray and ask God to help us to care enough to pray and obey. Heavenly Father, we do come thanking you for your presence here today, thanking you for your word, thanking you for your grace and mercy. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts uh, for communion, I pray, Lord God, that this idea that, that you care for the lost is why we're even talking about these things, because we were lost, but now we're found. And now you want us to play a role in reaching out to those who are still lost and still need to come to you. And so I pray, help us to care, help us to pray, help us to obey. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.